Welcome to the podcast of Pengrove Community Church. We exist to bring glory to God through lives changed by the gospel of Jesus. Our church is located about 45 minutes north of San Francisco, and if you live in the area, we'd love to have you join us. You can also learn more about us online at pengrovechurch.org. Enjoy the sermon. All right, well, we're going to get into the sermon. We're going to be continuing our series through the gospel of John. We are now in our second week, and we're in the middle of John's famous and beautiful and powerful prologue. It's his introduction to his biography of Jesus, so it's really his introduction to Jesus. A lot of it comprises almost like a backstory explaining where Jesus came from. And one of the recurring themes of this introduction is that Jesus is the light of the world. He is a light for the entire world that gives life to anybody who believes in him. And he is a light that enables us to see. C.S. Lewis once said that I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. By it I see everything else. So when, when John says that Jesus is the light of the world, part of what he means is that through Jesus, we are able to see everything else clearly. We're able to see reality as it actually is. We're able to, to see the truth. And, and so if you think about that, it's, it's, it's beautiful, it's compelling. Jesus is this light that brings life and, and reveals the truth to us. It's through the lens of Christ that we're able to see reality and to, to see truth. So everybody accepts Jesus, right? Everybody wants Jesus, right? Everybody wants to see reality. Everybody wants to see the truth, right? Apparently not. Jesus is the light of the world, but somehow, for some reason, much of the world wants nothing to do with the light. You would think, as human beings, that we would want truth, that we would want reality, but, but clearly we don't. As we read through our passage in a moment, I want you to think about that. Our passage places a great emphasis on that, and I want you to think about why. Think about who Jesus is, why, why some people don't want him, and also why some people do. Please stand for the reading of God's word. I'll read the text for us. We're in John chapter 1, verses 6 through 13. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated, and please join me as I pray for us. Father, as we approach your word this morning, 
I pray that you would help us to approach it with reverence and awe, with interest and appreciation. Would you give us eyes to see so that we can understand what it's saying, so that we can truly comprehend it and apply it to our lives? Lord, would you give us, by your Spirit, insight into your Word? And would the light and life of your Son that comes through your Word transform us? Would it give us light for our lives? Would it be nourishing for us, God? Illuminating and enlightening for us, Lord. God, your, your word has power to transform us, to really like refresh our souls and, and change the way that we live our lives, the way that we think and feel. And so we ask that you would do that for us this morning. And we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. So did you notice in the passage how people responded to the light? God sent John to prepare the way for Jesus, for the light of the world. He sent this John to bear witness to Jesus. But notice what happened. The world was made through him. The world was made by him. And yet the world did not know him. It says that his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. I think it's really important for us to explore this, why people reject Jesus. And so we're going to spend quite a bit of time on that this morning. But ultimately, my hope is that through this, we as Christians who don't reject Jesus but accept Jesus, that through this exploration we could come to understand and appreciate Jesus more. We want to be people who receive Jesus day in and day out, who believe Jesus day in and day out. That's the ultimate purpose of our passage this morning. So we're going to go through it in three parts. The light witnessed, the light rejected, and the light received. Let's start with the light witnessed. And when I say witnessed, and when the passage says witnessed, we don't mean seen or or perceived. We mean witnessed to. As in God went to incredible lengths to provide witnesses who testified to Jesus and who he was and the truth he revealed. We see this starting in verses 6 through 8. It says there was a man sent from God named John. We know from various clues in in this passage and throughout the Gospel of John that the author of the Gospel of John is not talking about himself. Rather, he's talking about John the Baptist. John the Baptist, a very famous figure in the Bible. If you're not familiar with John the Baptist, let me give you some basic facts about him. He was a cousin of Jesus. He was born a a few months before Jesus, and before he was born, there were a number of supernatural things that occurred uh, before and, and shortly after his birth. There was an angel that had appeared to his father to announce his coming. And when John was born, from, from the very start, he lived a life completely devoted to God. As a result, he became a very famous prophet. He gained a big following throughout Israel at that time. And, and it almost fills in some of the gaps for us. 
you know, in, in, when, you, when you read the Gospels, when you look at the New Testament, you get these biographies of Jesus, and it tells you about Jesus' birth, and it tells you about his ministry, but it doesn't tell you about virtually anything that happens between his birth and his ministry. There's this giant gap, right? All this information about his birth. One instance where he's in the temple, and his parents lose him, and, and they go back home, and they, he's not part of the party, and they have to go back to Jerusalem, and they find him in the temple. So there's basically his birth, one instance, and then fast forward, you know, 30 years, and it, and it goes into the beginning of his ministry. Well, during that time, leading up to the beginning of Jesus' ministry, we don't know much about what Jesus was doing, but we know a lot about what his cousin John was doing. His cousin John was preaching to people. He was prophesying. He was preaching repentance. He, he was baptizing people. And he had become so impressive and so famous that some people thought he was the light. But as we'll see later in the Gospel of John, it was never about him. John the Baptist was never about John the Baptist. His whole life, his whole life was dedicated to preparing people for the coming of Jesus, the true light, because people needed to be prepared. A, a person as important as Jesus doesn't just show up unannounced. He needs to be heralded. He needs to be heralded like, like a, a king coming into the city and there's a procession and there's trumpets and there's banners and so forth. So, so part of what we see with the gospel of John coming to bear witness to Jesus, or sorry, with John the Baptist coming to bear witness to Jesus, part of what we see is that this highlights the greatness of Jesus. As great as John was, and I want you to think of the most impressive, powerful person that you have ever heard of. That's who John the Baptist was for these people. For the people at that time, in that place, John the Baptist was this titanic figure just dripping with supernatural power and anointing, the most impressive spectacular person they had ever encountered. And yet that man says, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And the point is that Jesus possesses a greatness beyond our comprehension. The witnessing of John highlights that for us. And the witnessing of John the Baptist also highlights how reluctant people are to believe in Jesus. I want you to think about the lengths that God has gone to to provide evidence for Jesus, to prove to everybody that Jesus really was the Son of God. Part of that evidence is the testimony, the witnessing of John the Baptist. You have this incredible supernaturally anointed figure who gains this huge following and he uses that following that influence to bear witness to jesus but but beyond that testimony we also see the miracles of jesus jesus went around doing incredible things turning water into wine he had the ability to to discern people's hearts to essentially read their minds he healed their diseases he raised people from the dead he walked on water all of those miracles bear witness 
to Jesus. And so as John is beginning his gospel and introducing us to Jesus and giving us the backstory of Jesus, what he's trying to say is that there are all these things that prove that Jesus was supernatural. There are all these things that prove that Jesus really was the Word who was with God and the Word who was God. Who, that All these things that prove that Jesus really was God in human flesh. And so he's pointing us to John the Baptist. Later he's going to point us to the miracles of Jesus. He's going to highlight for us how the Old Testament predicted the coming of Jesus. All throughout the Old Testament there are dozens of prophecies very specific prophecies that were fulfilled by Jesus in his birth and in his life and in the miracles that he did. We also know that the apostles testified to Jesus. You had all of these great figures in early church history who, who said, we saw Jesus risen from the dead with our own two eyes. They all said over and over and over again, we were eyewitnesses to, to the risen Lord. And they were all so convinced that he really rose from the dead that they gave up everything to proclaim that message. The, these are men who gave up their jobs, gave up their families, they gave up their communities, their homes, and eventually they gave up their lives. They were so convinced that they left everything to tell people, we saw Jesus risen from the dead. Jesus is God. If you believe in him, you can have eternal life. They were so convinced of that, that they went around bearing witness to that at the expense of everything they held dear in their lives, their families, their jobs, their homes, everything. And at the, when the time finally came where they were faced with death for, for proclaiming the message of Jesus, they refused to recant. They refused to change their story, and they were eventually killed for their proclamation of the gospel, for their proclamation that Jesus was risen from the dead. Not a single one of them ever recanted. Isn't that remarkable? You can find a lot of stories throughout human history about gurus and religious figures that supposedly did miraculous things and, and supposedly... You know, a lot of people followed them and believed in them. But you know what you find with those stories? People recanting. People changing the story over and over and over again. You find fabrications and lies. You find Joseph Smith, for example, the founder of Mormonism, dying in a shootout in prison. And then people saying he, he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. Excuse me, he died in a shootout. It's just bogus. It's obviously bogus. And yet with Jesus, you find none of that. You find men who told the same story day in and day out, decade after decade, and gave their lives for that and never once recanted. God has provided an abundance of evidence for Jesus. So remember that next time you're doubting. Remember that next time you're wondering, if he's really there, if he really is who the Bible says he is. We all doubt, we all struggle, we all fail to believe Jesus with as much confidence as we should. Can you imagine what it would be like as a Christian to be completely 100% confident in Jesus every hour of your life? To be 1,000% convinced every morning when you wake up 
through every night as you go to bed, and the next morning when you wake up again, to be unfailingly 1,000% confident and convinced that Jesus is the Lamb of God sent to take away the sin of the world, and that Jesus is present with you every moment. We all struggle to have that kind of belief, and yet all of this evidence exists to fortify that kind of belief in us, to help us to believe Jesus like that. I could go on and on and on for hours and hours. I want to highlight just a few more things for you, though, and you can ask me about it later if you want more details. But did you know that there is excellent historical evidence that Jesus actually rose from the dead? I'm talking about the kind of historical evidence produced by the, the, the top scholars in the world at the most prestigious universities in the world, published in peer-reviewed journals, published by the, the, the highest level academic presses, Oxford University Press, Cambridge University Press. There's excellent historical evidence that Jesus actually rose from the dead. Did you know that there are over 25,000 archaeological finds that verify the truth of the Bible? Did you know that modern science has shown over and over and over again that God actually does exist? So many people think that modern science and all the recent discoveries in science have disproven the existence of God when the reality is the exact opposite. Many of the landmark discoveries made by scientists over the past hundred years have borne witness to the Creator. There is, there is mountains of evidence for the truth of Christianity. So remember that when you're doubting. And let that make you wonder, why do people reject it? If there are mountains of evidence for it, why do people still reject the light? John highlights this irony for us. The world that he created did not know him. His own people did not receive him. No matter how much evidence you provide some people, they still refuse to believe in Jesus. A few years ago, there was a debate between a Christian and a really famous atheist named Dan Barker. And at one point, Dan Barker literally said these words. He said, even if I agreed 100%, that is, even if I agreed with all this evidence you've presented, and, and I admitted it's all accurate, it's all true. He said, I would still reject that being as Lord of my life because I'm better than that. I cannot accept Jesus as Lord. He was saying, no matter what the evidence says, no matter what kind of proof there is, I won't accept Jesus because I'm better than that. I cannot accept Jesus as Lord. So the problem, it seems... When it comes to the rejection of Jesus, the problem is not a lack of evidence. It seems more like a lack of humility. And that's what the Bible actually teaches. Sometimes it seems like people will believe in anything except Jesus. I always think of this article I read a number of years ago, and the author was talking about his friends and colleagues that he knew who, who did not accept Jesus, many of them. And he, he was saying they're, 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 these colleagues and friends were highly educated people, very smart, very rational, and they thought that it was laughable to believe things like Jesus rose from the dead or, or Jesus actually did miracles. They scoffed at these things. 
But he said in the article, the, the crazy thing was that those very same people believed in crystals and auras and energy vibrations and, and horoscopes. They thought they were so smart and so rational that they could never believe in something like Jesus walking on water. And yet they believed in the horoscopes. And yet they believed in the crystals and all of the New Age quackery. So, so what kind of cognitive dissonance is that? Like, how does that happen? How can the light of the world who created the world be rejected by the world that he created? How can the prophesied Jewish Messiah arrive exactly as prophesied by the Jewish scriptures and then get crucified by the Jewish people? Why do people reject the light? Well, Jesus tells us a few chapters later. In chapter 3, there's a man named Nicodemus who has come to Jesus in the middle of the night. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, and he came to Jesus in the middle of the night because he was scared of other people finding out that he went and had a conversation with Jesus. But he's intrigued. He probably heard the preaching of John the Baptist. He probably saw or heard about the miracles of Jesus, but he's still reluctant and they have this very interesting conversation. And at one point, Jesus says this, John 3, verses 19 through 20. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. So there's your answer. That's why reasonable people can see all the evidence in the world for Jesus, but still reject him because Jesus is the light and his light illuminates who they really are and all of the wicked things that they do. We all do wicked things. All of us. And sometimes we are reluctant to conform our understanding of human nature to what the Bible says. We tend to think that everybody's, you know, a pretty decent person, and we all make mistakes, and we all mess up sometimes, but, you know, I'm not Hitler, they're not Hitler, we're not talking about wicked people doing wicked things, it's just, but that's what the Bible actually says, is that we all do wicked things, all of us. What the Bible says about human nature is uncomfortable, and it's very, very different from what most people say about human nature. And so in order to understand what Jesus is saying here in this passage, that people hate the darkness because they love their sin, they hate the darkness or they hate the light because they love their sin and they want to get away from the light because of the wicked things that they do, in order to understand and believe what Jesus is saying here, we need to make sure that we have a proper understanding of human nature. And again, what the Bible says about human nature is that all of us are fallen, and all of us are deeply fallen, deeply sinful, every single day. We all do wicked things. And here's what happens when you encounter Jesus. It's like somebody shining a super powerful spotlight on your life, in your heart, in your thoughts, in your deeds. When you encounter Jesus, it's like he's shining a light on, on greed and lust and exaggeration and lying and pride and gossip and selfishness. 
So how do you respond to that kind of exposure? When the light of Jesus exposes their sin, Jesus is the light. So by nature, any encounter with him will expose what's hidden in the deepest recesses of our hearts. When Jesus exposes you like that, how do you respond? Are you going to try to justify yourself, shift blame, deny, try to grade yourself on a curve? A lot of people do a lot of things to avoid admitting their sin. They blame other people. They, they deny it. They grade themselves on a curve. I think that's one of the more prop popular strategies to say, well, you know, yeah, I make mistakes. I mess up, but, but everybody does. And I'm not, you know, I've never murdered anybody. I'm not Hitler, okay? I'm a pretty decent person. You grade yourself on a curve. In other words, when people encounter the light, they, they run, they hide, they reject the light. They don't want the truth if the truth makes them look bad. As human beings, we all like to think of ourselves as truthful people who seek the truth. But the reality is that human nature is such that we only want the truth if it makes us look good. We, we only want reality as long as it's not uncomfortable and unflattering. But Christians are supposed to be different. Christians are different. And I want to be clear about the difference here. I think the... The idea is that some people will think that the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is that when Jesus, the light, shines his light on a non-Christian, it reveals you know, greed, lust, selfishness, lying, and, and all of those things. But when he shines his light on a Christian, they're, they're clean, they're pure, they're, there are none of those things. But that is not the difference. When the light of Jesus shines on you and me, it reveals the very same things. You and me still struggle with these things. Christians are still filled with selfishness and greed and lust and lying and so on. But here's the difference between the Christian and the non-Christian. The non-Christian hides from the light. The non-Christian rejects Jesus, whereas the Christian owns up to what the light has exposed and turns to Jesus in order to be forgiven and cleansed. That's what makes somebody a Christian. Not that they're pure and spotless and perfect inside. They own up to what the light of Jesus exposes day in and day out. And they turn to Jesus day in and day out and, and lean on him for forgiveness and ask him for repentance and cleansing from their sin. So there are two options when it comes to the light. Jesus. You can either deny reality, deny the truth about yourself, and deny Jesus, or you can accept reality and cast yourself upon the mercy of Jesus. That's what it means to receive the light. Look again at verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So how do you receive Jesus? In order to receive, you must believe. That's what it says. Who believed in his name. In order, in order to receive, you must believe. To believe in the name of Jesus is to believe not a set of facts about him. It's to believe in him. His name represents him, his, his character, his person. So it's believing in the person of Jesus. 
D.A. Carson, a, a famous New Testament scholar, does a really good job of unpacking this for us. He's talking about the kind of belief or, or faith that a person has when they truly receive Jesus. And he says, such faith yields allegiance to the word. That is, allegiance to Jesus. Trusts him completely. Acknowledges his claims and confesses him with gratitude. That's, that, in all of its fullness, is what it means to receive Jesus. So have you received Jesus like that? I'm not talking about going to church. I'm not talking about helping people. I'm not talking about being a loving person. I'm not talking about being religious or doing some good things. I'm talking about trusting Jesus to save you from your sins. And trusting him so much that you obey him no matter what. If you trust Jesus like that, that's how you know, as verse 13 says, that you have been born of God. That you have been born of God. In his day, there was so much confusion about that. At the time of Jesus, people were so confused about these things. They, 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 they would often talk about who was a child of God, who was born of God, who, who was right with God. And they thought, their belief was that their bloodline, their DNA, their, their ancestry is what made them right with God. So if you had Jewish blood in your veins, you were of the light. You were good with God. And Jesus is constantly con confronting that misconception that they had. And there's an interesting dialogue in John chapter 8 between Jesus and some of the Jewish people. And he challenges them. And he challenges their, their spiritual status. And they respond by saying over and over again, but we're children of Abraham. Like, we have Jewish blood. What are you talking about, Jesus? We have Jewish blood. Case closed. We're right. You're wrong. How could you possibly suggest that we are not good with God? But listen to how Jesus responds to those people. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Well, let me pause for a second. Let me say, when you look at our passage this morning, and it says those talks about those who are born of God, rather than being born of the flesh. That's what it's talking about, born of the flesh. People who think, I'm good with God because of my flesh, because of the blood in my veins. And so to those people, in John chapter 8, they answered him, Abraham is our father. To those people, Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. Now here's the point that Jesus is making. Abraham believed the truth that he heard from God. And all of Abraham's true descendants trust God like that too. They have that faith that Abraham had. They have that belief that Abraham had in that it's the belief, not the blood. The belief is what makes a person a true descendant of Abraham. So, so you have to understand that this completely blew up their entire way of thinking about God and religion and how to be right with God. And sometimes that's exactly what people need. They need to be told 
What, what makes you a child of God is that you are born of God, not the blood in your veins. Sometimes people need to be corrected in the way that they think about how to be right with God. The world is filled with wrong thinking about how to be right with God. And some people apparently believe that it's about your bloodline. Some people believe that it's about going to church or doing good or praying the rosary. Some people believe it's about them and their choices. And I want to focus on that one for a minute. Some people believe that ultimately the deciding factor when it comes to them being right with God, ultimately they think it's up to me. I have to make the decision to choose Jesus. Now, I want us to think carefully about this. Does being a child of God, does believing and receiving Jesus ultimately come down to you and your choices, to your free will, to you using your free will to accept Jesus or or to choose to follow Jesus? I want us to look at the text. It says that those who receive Jesus are those who are born of God. They are not born of the will of man. They are those who are born of God, not those who are born of the choices of man or the decisions of man. And this does not mean that your choices don't matter. This does not mean that your will doesn't matter. Your, your choices do matter. Your will does matter. But ultimately, what our text is teaching us is that the cause of your salvation is God. Ultimately, God is completely sovereign over you in your salvation. He is the ultimate cause. Some people put such a strong emphasis on their free will and their choices and their decision. But the Bible puts the emphasis on God and his choices and his decision. I want to give you a few verses that that prove this point, that highlight this point for us. John chapter 15, verse 16. It's on your notes. Jesus said to the disciples, You did not choose me, but I chose you. We could truly put a period right there, and it would, it would make the point that needs to be made. Jesus said to his disciples, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should bear fruit, or that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give to you. Now, of course, when Jesus called the disciples, when you read the Gospels and you see Jesus calling these various disciples, those men decided to stop what they were doing and and listen. Those men responded to the call of Jesus. But if you read the scriptures carefully and you put all the pieces of the puzzle together, even our ability to respond to the call of Jesus, even our ability to respond to God's initiative in our lives is given to us by God. God is so completely sovereign over our salvation, that even though our choices are important, Jesus can say in truth, you did not choose me, but I chose you. First John 4.19 is another text. It says, we love because he first loved us. God always makes the first move. And without God making the first move, 
we would never, ever, ever, ever make a move back. We love only because he first loved us. So your love for God is enabled by God first loving you. Your ability to love others is enabled by God first loving you. Another one along these lines is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. It says, In you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. Then it goes on, But God, being rich in mercy. And a lot of people read this and they think, Okay, I was dead in my trespasses and sins. I'd made a whole bunch of mistakes. I'd walked away from God. I, I wasn't going to church, but, but it, I finally came to my senses and I decided to follow Jesus. And I decided to, to come back. But that's not what it says, right? It says, it says, you were dead, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. People who are dead in their sins and trespasses don't choose God. God chooses them. God has to make the first move. You are not the ultimate reason that you are a Christian. God is. That's what it means to say that we are born of God, not of the will of man. So, so if it really were true that you were born of the will of man, that your birth into the family of God, your regeneration, you being born again, born again if that was the result of the will of man, the, re, the will of you, it truly would be the case that it was, came down to your choice, your decision. But that's not what it says. It says you were born of God. You were dead in your sins, and God made you alive. And there's a reason that God does it that way. Ephesians 2.9 gives us the answer. So that no one may boast. So that no one may boast. God gets all the credit. He gets all the glory. There's another passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. And I didn't include it in your notes, but in that text, the Apostle Paul basically says, not many of you, referring to the Christians in Corinth, he says, not many of you were wise or noble or wealthy, but God made you alive. God redeemed you, and he did it that way so that nobody may boast. So God didn't choose a bunch of all-stars to make up his church. God chose a bunch of nobodies so that he gets all the credit when he turns those people into all-stars. Do you get it? If we all come from nothing, essentially, spiritually speaking, and then God sets his love upon us and he transforms us and he gifts us and he grows us and matures us, and there, therefore he gets all the credit. So, so God gets all the credit, he gets all the glory, and that is ultimately what this passage is about. Isn't that what John is trying to do with this prologue to this biography of Jesus? He's trying to show us the greatness of Jesus, the magnificence of Jesus, and he's showing us that by emphasizing the point that you didn't save you, Jesus saved you. 
It wasn't some prayer you prayed. It wasn't some good, loving thing that you did. It was Jesus, the light of the world. A light so powerful that it gives life, eternal life, to sinners who are dead in their sins and trespasses, to sinners like you and me. Let's pray. Jesus, we want to give you all the glory for what you have done in our lives. Jesus, we want to have hearts of gratitude towards you, hearts of humble, awestruck gratitude before you and what you have done for us. It's not enough to say that we couldn't have done it without you. It's we, we, we gave nothing. We did nothing. We could do nothing. We were completely lost, dead, hopeless, lifeless, and you gave us life. We want to recognize you for that and honor you for that and love you for that and live lives of gratitude towards you for that. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.